Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Eric Trexler. I'm super excited to have you on. He is a researcher, a uh, the co-host of the um sorry, co-author of Mass Research Review, host of the Stronger by Science podcast and a pro bodybuilder with a PhD in human movement science and a master in exercise physiology. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. That's awesome. And I, I would love for you to just um, briefly introduce yourself in the sense of how you got into bodybuilding and exercise science or this whole um, area, just for those people who are not aware of your story. Yeah. So uh, growing up, I really liked playing sports. Uh, you know, football was one of the big ones. And then I got into wrestling. And when I started getting into wrestling, I got interested in body composition, nutrition, weight manipulation, things like that, uh, acquired way too many concussions. And then it was like, well, what am I going to do now? I got to stop getting hit in the head. So I got into powerlifting and bodybuilding because I could continue training the way I like to train uh, and still have some kind of competitive outlet. But then I was like, well, how do I get good at bodybuilding and powerlifting? And I, I figured out I need to figure out uh, – or I realized I need to figure out what the research says about how to train, how to eat. So then I start reading that and I said, I'd like to actually do some of this research. And then it all goes from there. I uh, went to college uh, or university, um, did my undergraduate degree, did my master's, did my PhD, whole bunch of research. And that brings me to where I'm at now. Uh, you know, I've, I've competed in bodybuilding and powerlifting. Um, I, you know, do the, ma the mass research review that you mentioned, Stronger by Science, where we do articles, podcasts, things like that. Uh, I used to do a lot of coaching. I don't do that as much anymore because we released the Macro Factor Diet app, which is uh, which was cool because now I feel like I get to coach tens of thousands of people instead of like 20, you know, because, um, you know, the, the diet app, I, I was able to, I had the opportunity to kind of boil down my nutrition coaching philosophy into this application, which now can reach way more people than I could possibly coach. Super cool. And um, I believe the Macro Factor app also does a free trial. So for anyone out there who's looking for a new uh, diet tracking app, I, I highly recommend going and checking it out. Um, but I I think your your story sounds rather linear. I can imagine that it's uh, there will were still some bumps and um, detours possibly here and there. Um, nonetheless, I, I before we talk a little bit about your bodybuilding career, uh, there are actually a couple of topics um, that I have kind of picked up from your recent podcasts, I guess. Um, uh, and the first one that really interested me was that I heard you transitioned to a little bit more of a plant-based diet. And um, I don't, I don't even necessarily want to get into, um, you know, the reasoning for it or so what, what I'm really curious about mostly is how you did that transition so that your gut 
um, your digestive system could keep up with it so that um, your micronutrient profile was still staying higher, that you would avoid any deficiencies and so that you're still hitting your protein because from my experience with, with other clients or with, um, with people just saying like, oh, I'm on a plant-based diet, I'm having these and those issues or have really have that digestive problem. I, I, I'm very curious to hear your approach. Yeah, sure. Um, so for me, um, I, I do think that the reasoning provides a little bit of context. You might notice that there are a bunch of little bowls behind me. Uh, I am a practicing Buddhist, and that happened within the last few years. Um, a lot of people will see me on podcasts and say, why do you have all those like, it looks like those things to grind up powders and stuff. Um, yeah, I'm not like, I don't have like run a supplement shop out of the back of my office. They're, they're little Tibetan singing bowls um, that facilitate certain meditation practices. But uh, so I am a practicing Zen Buddhist. And as I got deeper and deeper into that, I kind of realized that I wanted to transition over to more of a plant-based diet. And at this, at this point, I, when I'm eating my normal diet at home, it's a vegan diet exclusively. Um, and just when I'm traveling or if someone is preparing meals for me, just to ease up a little bit of flexibility, I will, con I, I become basically like an ovo-lacto vegetarian in those contexts, um, you know, just to try to make life a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, the, the transition honestly for me was quite easy. I think if you talk to someone who became a vegan in 1981, uh, they're, they're, transition was probably much harder. But I mean, nowadays with all of the uh, soy-based supplements, pea-based supplements, uh, with all of the meat imitation products that are really good now, I know no one takes you seriously when you say those are really good, but they're very good. Uh, <laughs> this new generation of meat imitation products that's come out in the last few years, uh, or the last several years, it is really a step up from from what was previously available. So to me, I mean, even without uh, consciously switching, I normally ate a diet at certain periods of my life that was basically an ovo-lacto-vegetarian diet just because I didn't feel like cooking meat all the time. Um, it just, to me, was an easier diet from a food preparation perspective. Um, uh, so, so for me, you know, going from eating meat to any type of vegetarian was very, very easy. Uh, but then switching over to a fully vegan diet while trying to be, you know, relatively high in protein. Like I said, I, I do lean on the basics, pea-based protein supplements, soy-based products, imitation meat products, um, uh, tofu, soy crumbles, um, you know, a variety of different sources like that. And uh, I did used to eat eggs that I would get. There's actually an animal rescue a few few miles down the road here. I used to be able to get eggs from their rescue chickens, uh, which um, was in line with kind of the animal welfare perspective, which was why I adopted a, a vegan diet. Uh, and, you know, they were happy little chickens who were being rescued from uh, bad living conditions, and they're just hanging out on the farm, and they're going to lay the eggs anyway. So it was a cool situation where the proceeds from selling the eggs would would help fund the animal rescue that would take care of all the animals. So it, it felt like a really nice thing. Um, but unfortunately, you might 
some people might have heard that this year is a really bad year for bird flu. And unfortunately, they had bird flu kind of run through that that uh, group of chickens. It was it was really sad. So no more eggs. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's it's been a really simple transition in terms of protein just because some of those products are so good um, and they're so accessible. I mean, I, I get everything I get from like Costco, <laughs> which is like the super generic big chain, you know. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, the question about micronutrients, um, I don't really get it. Every, everyone talks about it like it's, you know, this really, really difficult thing. Uh, I take a multivitamin every day. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm still kicking. I <laughs> feel fine. Um, you know, I, I don't do a lot of like really intricate testing of, you know, blood or tissue level micronutrient content. But if, if I had any clinically relevant symptoms of a deficiency, of course I would. But at this point, I, I take a multivitamin when I remember to, which is like a few days a week. And it, it's been totally fine. It really hasn't been uh, much of an issue whatsoever. Um, the digestive side, uh, again, I think because of the choices I make with my, uh, you know, with my diet and food selection hasn't really been a big issue because I always maintained a relatively high fiber diet. And then when you are eating some of these processed uh, um, protein supplements, meat imitation products, it's not like trying to get 200 grams of protein from a whole food vegan diet. If you're doing that, you're going to be consuming so many non-digestible and partially digestible um, elements of the diet that you might have quite uh, quite an adaptation phase there where you have to kind of get used to that. There's usually going to be a huge increase in fiber intake. Um, but like I said, with, with some of the innovations in the uh, plant-based alternative food market, um, they're really great. I mean, they have high digestibility. They don't, you don't have to take in 90 grams of fiber to be on a high protein diet anymore if you're vegan. And uh, so, so that's worked out really well. And uh, one of the things I would like to mention is, you know, with the mass research review, I obviously am staying on top of the literature every month, looking at the new papers that come out and people hear about those meat imitation products. And there's, there's kind of two common claims that they make. One is, well, they're not natural, so they must be terrible, right? Anything that's been created must be bad. Uh, and the other thing people talk about is, well, they're so processed. That's a bunch of crap. You know, processed food is bad food. But these plant-based alternatives, uh, in terms of supporting performance and hypertrophy, so far, the research is very positive. Uh, in terms of supporting cardiometabolic health outcomes, the research so far is very positive. Um, and I believe, based on the evidence, that when it comes to vegan or vegetarian protein sources, processing can be a very helpful thing. You know, so when we hear about processed foods being bad, people are usually thinking about some type of, uh, you know, for example, a grain product where all the fiber and a lot of the micronutrients have been removed and it's been processed into this um, food product with high energy density with uh hyper palatability so that we're in we have a higher likelihood of over consuming the product but when it comes to processing vegan protein sources a lot of times what we're doing is we're taking out uh some of the things that might interfere with micronutrient absorption we're taking out uh the excess fiber that would make the the, the meal just really dreadful to eat in the context of a uh, an already high fiber diet and in many cases, you're, you're talking about creating a protein source that has better digestibility 
and a better amino acid profile. And so we're actually turning a combination in many cases of lower quality proteins into a higher quality protein source. So um, I know that simple heuristics are very attractive in nutrition. And we might want to say, if it's processed, it's bad. You know, if we couldn't eat it 20,000 years ago, it's bad. But we do have to look into some of these products and say, well, bad, why? What about this is bad? And what we find is that processing food or creating new products is not always a bad thing. That absolutely makes sense. And from personal experience in terms of digestibility, I can only agree with some of those um, sources such as like bean pasta, or I, I personally quite like the textured soy protein. I think that you were um, talking about as well. I think it's uh, also a very easy um, travel tool for someone who, who, who likes to travel since all you need to do is sometimes it's like add hot water or whatever. I yeah. quite like um, uh, I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone who is struggling to reach their protein on a plant-based diet um, if they want to avoid soy products. Um, is, is there anything that you particularly would lean on? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I have really liked using a combination of like pea proteins, um, different types of beans and legumes have been helpful. Uh, and then, you know, processed products that use those as a protein source. Um, and yeah, in, in that situation, you might want to look a little bit more into some complementary protein matching um, to make sure that you're not totally falling short of like lysine content or methionine content. But usually it doesn't take a lot of effort. Usually um, we're, we're quite lucky in the sense that complementary proteins tend to just pair well together. So usually you, you do complementary proteins without thinking about it. Uh, another one that doesn't get mentioned quite as much is mycoprotein which is um, derived from a particular type of fungus, which doesn't sound appetizing, but you know, it's pretty good. Uh, mycoprotein is pretty good. It's a reasonably high, high quality protein. Pea is also a pretty high quality protein in terms of its uh, um, characteristics, but mycoprotein, uh, back in the day, they used to say it was derived from mushrooms. And then someone was like, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> but they're like, well, it's a, but it's fungus and mushroom close enough. And they're like, no, not close enough. So there are some, um, you know, legal judgments that said you can't keep saying this is mushroom. So uh, but anyway, mycoprotein is, is a, a really nice protein source as well. Nice. And I, I heard that there might be like a, a corn whey protein coming out or something like that with a really good uh, amino or from maize. I, I don't know. That's I heard that somewhere. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> yeah, But, I mean, There, there's also, um, there is a company, I believe based out of California that says that they've got a process to do um, uh, a whey protein. It doesn't have all of the, the, the peptides we would expect from like a, a dairy derived whey protein, but they do have a form of whey protein that they're saying is, um, completely plant-based. And um, I think they have some type of fermentation process that produces it. So I've heard of a completely vegan uh, source of both whey protein and even some dairy products. I think they're even making an ice cream uh, mm. with one of the companies out there that they are able to create, you know, these certain types of whey protein 
uh, without the involvement of any animals at any point in the process, which is which is fascinating. And, uh, you know, hopefully they'll be able to scale that up in an affordable way because, um, you know, I mean, it'd be it'd be great if, if you know, in 30, 40, 50 years, we've got a combination of some of these um, uh, fermented uh, dairy alternative products. We've got some you know, I think lab grown meat is a really fascinating idea. Um, I don't know a tremendous amount about it, but you know, I, I think the there's going to be some really interesting innovations in the future that that are going to make it easier. Even if you're not all that into um, plant based dieting, it's just going to make it easier to feed the planet, which is a really positive thing. For sure, no, I I totally agree. I think there will be some 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 cool and cool things coming out more and more, as you said. Even in the last five years, so much has changed. Um, I would love to uh, touch on one last thing in that area before we move on in regards to omega threes and um particularly from uh from algae. Uh, oftentimes you hear, oh, that's just ALA. You can only get um ALA uh, amino acids or omega threes from from algaes is there any truth to that or what kind of um omega-3 supplement would you recommend for vegan vegans i guess i've never heard that particular claim um i i could certainly look into it but my understanding was that um you know you could get epa and dha from an algae oil supplement um but yeah i i can look into that a little bit deeper but um I'm yeah probably i mean mistaken about that <laughs> yeah i've i've not that? heard that but i i know that a common claim is uh if you don't go for a marine based uh plant source then then you are kind of stuck with ala um if you're going That's to you know, more and, like yeah 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 um and, and so in that case um that's fine i mean you know it's you'll be okay if, if you're just getting all your omega-3s from ALA. I mean, the, the body does have the capacity uh, to convert into other, um, you know, types of omega-3 fatty acids. So, uh, you know, you you could go your, your whole life, you know, just relying on ALA as your omega-3 source and be just fine. Um, but in, a, in many cases, you could argue that there is some benefit of directly ingesting a, a source of EPA and DHA. Um, last I checked, uh, that was available through, uh, through algae based sources. Um, so yeah, I, I do, uh, I do take, uh, an algae oil supplement, um, again, when I remember to, that's the important thing to keep in mind about these supplements is, um, you know, when you talk about a multivitamin, when you talk about omega-3 fatty acid, it's, you know, some people, they get stressed out if they miss it for a day. And it's like, well, you know, we're trying, the day is an arbitrary unit of time. You know, we're trying to make sure that over the course of a year, pretty frequently throughout that time period, we're putting in the nutrients that we need and getting what we need. So uh, I'm not the type who really stresses over, oh no, I missed my multivitamin on Wednesday and I missed my algae oil on Friday. <laughs> what a bad week for my health status. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I tell you what, you know, I have been really interested since I switched to a plant-based diet. I did it knowing that even if there are downsides, I'm just, I'm willing to take those downsides. I'm fine with it. But um, I haven't noticed any, uh, which is good. But I've also noticed that when people talk about a plant-based diet, 
all of a sudden the human body becomes the most fragile machine that's ever been devised. You know, it's like, oh, I mean, the things that it takes to keep a human body alive, it's it's almost impossible on a plant-based diet. And I just don't know where that comes from. I mean, the, when we look at omega-3 fatty acid requirements, it can easily be obtained without supplementation on a plant-based diet. Um, yeah, a, a lot of the, the concerns that people float by me, they're like, well, you're going to be deficient in this, this, and this. And then I'll look at, you know, uh, some large project where they look at tissue levels of micronutrients. And I say, you know, I'm not sure if you omnivores are doing all that much better <laughs> when I look at the actual data. You see, you guys seem to be coming up short on some things too, now that you mention it. And it is kind of funny that people take the theoretical fact that now there are some nutrients that you have to work a little bit harder to get. And they assume, well, that's going to be a dramatically lower health status. And you're going to have all these clinically relevant symptoms. But then I look at the literature and I say, I understand your theory, but I need to see the people that are suffering from this and, and they're, they're often hard to find. Now that doesn't mean that you should dive headfirst into a poorly formulated diet, omnivorous, plant-based, whatever the case may be. Um, but I do think it's kind of funny that a lot of people seem to assume as long as you're an omnivore, you're good. But at the moment you become a vegan, now your health is in trouble and the, the empirical data just don't bear that out at all. I think you touched on two really good points there in the sense of any diet can be an unhealthy diet in the sense of, you know, you can be vegan and just eat uh, bread and jam all day long, certainly not covering your micronutrients there. And uh, certainly for omnivores, as well, as you say, you can uh, have a very unhealthy omnivore diet. Um, and the other thing being your belief and attitude about something determines a lot. I think if you head into a vegan diet and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be so deficient. I'm going to be so low on energy and I'm going to lack this and that. Um, yeah, your body is probably going to pick up on that to an extent also. Whereas if you have, you know, if you're very content with your diet, it's probably a completely different thing. And and I think that that might be a good segue into um, the other thing I wanted to talk about. And that's exactly with the little bowls that you mentioned behind you, because uh, again, on, on your other podcast, I heard you talking about your journey um, to enlightenment, I believe you call it. <laughs> um, Jokingly, yes. <laughs> jokingly yes but but maybe with a little bit of, of truth behind it too and and I, I quite like that actually but what I um heard you speak about and what I think um the listeners can really benefit from is you spoke about mindful eating and just mindfulness in general and how you can transfer that into mindful eating and I I really loved what you said there and some of the advice that you gave and maybe you can touch on that again, just in general, what mindfulness is and how we can apply that to better nutrition or to better eating habits, perhaps. Yeah. So, I mean, mindfulness in a way, um, you can almost kind of view it as a state of mind or a, a quality of focus in a way. So when we talk about mindfulness really broadly, one, one, you know, so I practice Zen Buddhism in the lineage or the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And, uh, he, he's made a lot of books, podcast content, etc. Uh, he passed away a little over a year ago, but his influence has been tremendous. Uh, he spent 95 years with us, uh, you know, so he, he did a lot. Um, in, in our tradition, when we, we, we don't hit the bell, we don't strike the bell, the, these bowls behind me, we invite the bell. You know, 
which is hitting the bell. <laughs> we use kinder terminology, but uh, the bell, you know, when we ring it, it, it's it's a reminder to us to practice mindfulness. And what that means is to bring our mind, to bring our focus, to bring our energy, our attention back to the present moment. So instead of thinking, you know, when I get off this call, I need to go in and edit those articles and I need to make sure I update something over here. It's very easy as we go about our life to actually be stuck attentionally in the future or to be thinking, oh man, it's going to be tough tonight because earlier today I was supposed to do that thing, but I got lazy and I missed it. So, And then we're thinking about the past and we're, <laughs> we're regretting the past. And so it's really fascinating to think about how much of our life we spend thinking about the past, thinking about the future, thinking about alternative realities that have never and will never exist, rather than bringing our focus to right here, right now, my mind in my body experiencing what I'm experiencing at this moment. And so mindfulness is, uh, paraphrasing, it's, it's the idea of really bringing your attention into the present moment on purpose and just paying attention. Um, and so you know, in the Buddhist tradition, in, in Zen Buddhism uh, specifically, that's just the, the particular school of Buddhism I feel most comfortable talking about based on uh, my personal experience. We talk about mindfulness as being a, a quality of being a state of mind that we bring ideally, if possible, to everything we do, you know, so mindfully walking, mindfully sitting, mindfully having a conversation with someone and really deeply listening, uh, mindfully washing the dishes, you know, not washing them and thinking after I do this, I'm going to do that. Just wash the dishes and think about it and enjoy it if you can. And uh, so we can also apply that to eating. And when we talk about mindful eating, we talk about, again, bringing our focus, bringing our attention to the meal itself. And then usually within the context of a kind of um, Buddhism adjacent framework, we might we might think about incorporating some of the just kind of philosophical leanings of, of a Buddhist perspective into that process. So, uh, you know, paying attention, taking our time, savoring a meal, but also thinking about uh, a level of gratitude that we take into the meal, appreciating the meal for what it is, appreciating what it takes for the meal to exist and be here, you know? So leaning on some of those phys, uh, philosophical ideas uh, that permeate Buddhism. Uh, but yeah, so with mindful eating, it's it's not about what you eat. Uh, and it's really not necessarily all that much about why you eat, but it's very much about how you eat. And so a person who eats mindfully is paying attention to their meal. I mean, so in, uh, in a lot of Zen Buddhist traditions, um, if you go to a retreat and you you stay there for a, a weekend or a week or whatever the case may be, a lot of times mealtime, at least po a portion of it will be totally silent. And it's not somber. It's not like, oh, we're going to you know have this sad, quiet, lonely experience eating. Uh, you can enjoy people's company while not talking. You know, that that is a thing that can happen. Uh, and I think a thing that should happen more, you know, sometimes people feel so obligated to fill the room with noise. But um, the idea of doing a meal silently is that you can bring all your focus and attention to savoring uh, the flavor, the aroma, the taste, eating slowly, taking your time, not, you know, 
going to a, a sports bar and watching the game and, you know, you're kind of distracted and eating and who knows how many calories you ate because you just kept eating because your environment and context convinced you you ought to keep eating. Um, so it, it's about focusing on the meal, focusing on the food, savoring it, enjoying it uh, and, and experiencing that gratitude of I think gratitude is one of the things that gets lost a lot during dieting. You know, I think it's so easy when we're dieting to sit down, look at a plate and say, oh my God, this again, you know, is boring food, cauliflower, whatever the case, you know, some, whatever it is. It's so easy to say without even thinking through it, we're making comparisons. We're saying I could have had pizza, but instead I'm eating this crap and I feel like I've been cheated. You know, I, I'm, I don't feel any gratitude at all. I'm feeling envy. I'm feeling this uh, craving, this comparison between what I could have had and what I do have. And it's about flipping that and saying, how in the world did all these different elements of my meal get here? You know, mm -hmm. it, think about what goes into growing that produce, picking it, getting it from, you know, halfway across the world to your plate where you get to enjoy it. It's about recontextualizing the meal, reframing it, and just simply eating in a different way with a different state of mind. And so mindfulness, we can apply it to a lot of things and eating is certainly one of them. I really like that, uh, particularly that you brought up um, also its place in within dieting in the sense of just appreciation for how, how that you are able to eat something. Some people, don't have anything or you know it, we we just regard everything as so it's such a given like oh I wish I could have had uh, that brownie or whatever or you know like instead of thinking oh, I'm so grateful I have this chicken and the cauliflower or whatever it is um so really really good and also in the sense of just simply slowing down I I have to say I have a little bit of a pet peeve when it comes to people eating on the go and I I understand uh why people tend to do it but it's like you're shoving something in your mouth while you're walking while talking on the phone while looking at the traffic while like did you even notice how many bites you took or whether it tasted good or not that good or uh, and then being surprised that your digestive system didn't have the time to properly um, process everything also so yeah the the slowing down i really really um like that point actually um yeah and if, if i could add to that if you don't mind uh so I've, yeah. i've got a book sitting over there called our appointment with life and the idea is if we're not mindful we might just miss it You know, like if we're really not paying attention to the moments we're spending in our life, if we're always somewhere else, we might miss it. You, you could think of going to a baseball game to enjoy it and watching a movie on your phone the whole time. You missed the baseball game because you were completely somewhere else mentally. And it's the same kind of thing with a meal, like, like you're talking about. You're walking, you're talking, you're on the phone, you're distracted. It's like, did you even, were you there for that appointment with that meal? Did you really experience it in a meaningful way? And what I often tend to find is that when you convince someone to actually be there for the meal fully, they will <laughs> experience, uh, I've made up a term and I forget what the term is because it was a dumb made up term anyway, but just the sheer amount of enjoyment per calorie, satisfaction per calorie, we can call it like a satisfaction quotient of that meal, it goes up astronomically. And to me, it's in the context of dieting, what a shame it would be 
to consume a 700 calorie meal and not even enjoy it because you just didn't try. You just weren't there, you know? And so I, I think it's kind of the same thing. You mentioned it being a pet peeve. Sometimes I'm like 700 calories and you barely got anything for it because you just weren't there for it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I will fully admit that I'm also sometimes distracted, like looking at my phone or something while I'm eating, or we always think uh, we need to do other things at the time. It's it's difficult, particularly throughout the day to take a break for food. Um, nonetheless, I think, as you say, with regular mindfulness practice, I, I, I like that it's called mindfulness practice, because it's not something that comes natural to us and um, I do think we can definitely at least try to get better at it and just say okay I'm going to take two deep breaths before I might have my next meal or maybe I'll make a point of putting down my fork between bites or simply trying to not listen to anything for these five minutes um yeah it's it's definitely something we have to consciously do unfortunately nowadays <laughs> i don't know if it was different back in the day but it always feels like it was um so yeah i think it's a good recommendation especially for people dieting or in a lower calorie prescription and um i guess that does lead me into the kind of the last thing i, I definitely want to talk about uh, still a little bit of your contest prep as well um i i don't know how many preps you have done by now but i'm uh, wondering or i'm curious what you feel like was your most favorite and your least favorite things about contest prep and also the time afterwards because sometimes people say um I hated every minute of prep, as you say, like such low calories. I had no energy for nothing, but then I stepped on the stage and it was all worth it. Or, you know, afterwards you have that whole perception of, oh, your calories go back up and you're excited to have more food, but you don't have that level of leanness anymore. So maybe you're not as happy with your aesthetics anymore. So yeah, I don't know if you have any thoughts to share. Sure. Yeah. I think I did, uh, I think I did three contest preps, uh, for a total of five competitions. Cause if you're going to get in shape, you might as well do a couple while you're in shape, you know? Um, so first contest prep, first time I ever did it, uh, boy, was I bulking up before it. So I had a long way to go to try to get lean. And ultimately I didn't get lean enough to really, tap into the interesting stuff with physiology you know i got lean but not that lean so you know i was I, I did the novice category for the competition uh which is first time competitors um and so i i got lean enough to win the novice category but you know not not particularly not what you would associate with a high level bodybuilder so then a couple years or a few years later i did another contest preparation um and uh, won my class in both of those shows in the open category. So that was the big time. I'd moved up out of the novice class and had to get lean enough to really do something uh, among, you know, the open competitors. And so I got really, really lean for that comp for those competitions. Um, and, and like I said, uh, won both won my class in both of them. Won the overall in in one of them. Uh, and that was wild because it was the first time i'd ever gotten that lean like really really lean and the um the contest prep you know the first one was pretty easy because i didn't get that lean the second one was 
tremendously difficult because I did get that lean. And then the aftermath was chaos. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, the, the overeating, just appetite out of control, didn't really know to expect it, um, wasn't experienced enough to really have a plan in place for how to navigate that process. And yeah, the rapid weight gain was uh, psychologically very discouraging after you spend so much time getting in shape. Um, but then you you establish a new steady kind of steady state balance. You know, your body fat redistributes. You start regaining some of the muscle instead of just the fat, and you get back and you say, "Oh yeah, I I do look like how I look." You know, twenty five pounds above stage weight. But it's weird because, you know, initially the first X amount of pounds that you regain if you're if you're regaining very very rapidly going to be a lot of fat and not a lot of muscle. So you start out, you know, you start out in a place before the prep where you say, oh, yeah, I like how I look. This is good. And as you prep, you you feel like you look better and better and better and better. And then you look terrible. And then you go back to feeling like, okay, now we're back to normal and I feel good again. So that's an interesting experience. And if you're not um, kind of mentally prepared for that, if you don't know what to expect, it can be really jarring. Um, and then I did one more contest prep after that, where I decided I want to go, I wanted to go for my pro card. Um, and so that was a successful attempt. Um, got my pro card, um, got very, very lean, but knew what to expect that time around. So the prep was hard. I was very hung, uh, very lethargic. The hunger actually wasn't all that bad because I could implement evidence-based strategies to minimize hunger to the extent possible. And I just knew that hunger was going to be part of the deal. So that wasn't too bad. I felt very lethargic and had a lot of trouble sleeping during that prep, which is a, a very common effect of getting that lean. So the sleep issues were really what dragged me down. The hunger wasn't all that big of a deal. And then the, the, the process after that competition was actually fine because I knew what to expect and I knew, okay, let's gradually regain some weight. Let's not worry about the fat gain, but let's not do it all in a day. You know, let's take a little bit of time. And so um, I'd say the first prep was relatively easy. Second was brutal. And the third was pretty easy again. And I know if I did a fourth, it'd be very, very manageable because it's really just about having clearer expectations about what the process involves and growing to a place where you can accept uh, the good and the bad that comes with contest preparation. Um, but yeah, I will say though, um, it was one of those things where the the prep where I got my pro card, I said, well, I'm in shape. I just got my pro card. There's a convenient pro competition in a couple weeks. I'm going to hang on and do that one as well before I transition into my off season. That might've been the hardest two or three weeks that I've ever experienced dieting uh, just because I didn't expect I was going to do all that well in the pro competition. I just kind of wanted to do it to say, okay, I've done, I've gotten the first one out of the way I've competed as a pro so I wanted to do it, but I wasn't really all in on it the way I was for getting my pro card. And so just trying to stay in that shape for two or three weeks before I knew I could go and eat all this stuff and get back to a, a more comfortable body weight, that was really, really challenging. Um, so yeah, it's, it's always a wild ride with the competitions, but I think the best thing you can do for yourself is 
have a goal that you really care about because that enthusiasm is going to really let the process be exciting rather than dreadful. And going in with a clear set of expectations about what's ahead of you. And I think that's why, um, you know, your first, your first couple competitions, you probably want to use a coach. I used a coach for my first one, my first prep, and that was helpful, but you know, I, I just didn't give him enough time to get me ready. So I didn't get lean. And so I thought I knew everything I was going to experience the next time around, but it was so much different when I really got to that next level of leanness. Unfortunately, the second time through, I did not use a coach. I just did it myself and the prep went well. I got into good shape, but I needed a lot more of a heads up about what after competition was going to be like. Um, but then again, the third, the third prep for the fourth and fifth competition, uh, I went, I just coached myself again, equipped with the knowledge of what was coming and it, it went really smoothly. That's awesome. I think uh, the value of a coach in those instances, even if you know your, if you hypothetically know how to um is still is still you know incredible in the sense of just having someone to guide you through it or to talk you through these difficult times but i think the thing that i want to highlight the most is um the word that you said expectations when it comes to literally everything you know when we head into just a general um weight loss phase uh thinking we're gonna lose five pounds in in the week or so might be a little bit of a downfall or loss of motivation if if that is not the case so whenever we feel um i guess um what do you want to say like disappointment or agitation it usually comes down to the reality not matching our expectations so having the right expectations or maybe no expectations sometimes can definitely be helpful <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, you know, I used to do a lot more one-on-one -on -one coaching than I do currently. Uh, I'm sure I'll get back into it eventually when, when the schedule frees up a little bit, but um, expectation management is such a big part of coaching and it's such mm -hmm. a big part of anyone's fitness journey. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of instances where you're starting to work with a client, even if they're not prepping for a competition, just, you know, whatever their goal is and you start to hear what, what they think their goal ought to be and they set a time frame to it and you say i mean we could we could get there but that is not a life you want to live i promise you know and so then we start talking about well if we want to make this sustainable if we want to still have a social life and still have dinner with the family and you know what what would be a better timeline and a better set of goals that we can kind of work together on and you know every now and then someone will say no I, I insist this is the goal. And I say, well, as long as you have that, the right expectations in mind and you know what that means, then we can move forward. But, but we need to discuss that before it happens, not as it's happening. Because <laughs> once it starts happening, if you're not equipped with the right set of expectations, it's, we feel like we're dealing with emergencies of like, what's happening? Why do I feel so tired, lethargic, hungry? Why can't I sleep as well at night? And it's like, well, we, we, we should have talked about that a while ago, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much for all the um, words of wisdom you, you have already shared, but I'm wondering if you might have like one last takeaway for anyone out there who is just ha has any kind of physique goals and wants to maintain them, whether that pertains to strength gains or muscle gain and or weight loss or anything like that. 
Yes. Uh, well, if we're talking about wisdom rather than uh, little tips of the of the trade, I think um, I think there's two things that people can carry with them as they pursue their fitness goals. Um, one would be make sure that you practice self compassion along the way. Make sure that your fitness goals are actually serving you rather than the other way around. Because um, I've known a great many folks who achieve all their fitness goals to theoretically make themselves happy and they sacrifice all their happiness to achieve their fitness goals. And so then you end up with a very loose pair of pants and a very unhappy life. And that is usually not what we are trying to do, right? So, um, you know, just, getting down a few notches in the belt but sacrificing happiness along the way is usually not a good trade-off so practicing self-compassion and giving yourself space to make mistakes and have detours and have pauses and making sure that your fitness goals are actually still serving you uh, it's really important to go back to your set of goals and revisit them in a very critical and rigorous way and say i thought that X, Y, and Z were going to lead me to happy, healthy fit, but it doesn't seem to be going that trajectory. So we need to get back to the drawing board and figure out how to make those things work again. Um, so yeah, stubbornness and lack of self-compassion with the goal setting process can be a very, uh, a very negative and deleterious thing. Um, the other thing is beware of comparisons. And, and that does kind of lump into self-compassion, but Sometimes people get really, really attached to a particular idea, uh, a particular goal. Sometimes people will even say, I want to look like this. And they'll hold up a picture of a person who is not them. <laughs> and it's like, you could do everything right and never look like that. Because even if we got you to the same body fat level, you've got different bone structure, you've got different muscle belly structure. So make sure that your comparisons are actually productive if they have to exist at all a better alternative is to have um other expectations in mind or other goals in mind that are not literally replicating a specific physique or look uh, because that can be a really dangerous game and you might find that you've put yourself on the trajectory to pursue a goal that simply is never going to happen even with your best intentions so those are the little bits of wisdom that i would that i would offer i love it thank you so much thank you for coming on the show today eric and and for everyone out there make sure to follow him on instagram it's trexler fitness and also go and check out the stronger by science podcast as well as mass research review um, and of course the macro factor app as well so thank you once again for your time thank you thank you for tuning in if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe leave a review or share the episode on social very much appreciated you can also follow us on instagram at nutrition coaching and life or head to our website www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com where we provide more valuable content have a wonderful day now go out and work on your best self